Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thanks for calling your people together. Um, thank you for all you've done for us, in us, through us, in our lives. Uh, I ask that this morning, anything that is keeping our focus from you, that you would give us the strength to put it aside, that through your spirit we'd be, we'd be able to hear your word deeply, and that we would encounter you, and by encountering you that we would be changed as we leave this place. We love you so much, in your name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Uh, so, hi everybody, it's great to see you all. Uh, my name is Ben, if you don't know who I am, and I get to share the word with you this morning, I'm re really excited about that. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that we're in this series on the book of Philippians. It's actually a letter uh, to a group of people called the Philippians. And uh, if you remember sort of from the, the beginning of this series, uh, this letter was written by a guy named Paul, who's one of the early leaders of the church, the, the Christian faith. And, uh, and he, Paul, had uh, this incredible life where he went all through the known world, sort of expanding the borders of Christianity all throughout the known world, planting all these congregations, preaching the message of Jesus. And, uh, and he had this lifelong dream that we start to read about in the New Testament. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And, uh, and we, there's this lifelong dream that he had as part of his mission, which was to bring the message of Jesus to Rome. At the time, Rome was sort of the center of power, the center of culture, and he wanted to bring the message of Jesus to Rome, specifically to the emperor and the emperor's household. He wanted to bring the message of Jesus into the heart of power and cultural influence. And he had this dream his whole life long, and he, as he went on his missionary journeys, he always was saying, I want to go to Rome, I want to go to Rome. So he did. He ended up going to Rome, and when he gets there, he gets put in prison, which is a big disappointment, right? He gets put in prison. And eventually, what we'll find out at the end of the book of Philippians, spoiler alert, what we'll find out is that uh, he actually does get a chance to preach the gospel to the, the people in Caesar's household. But he, uh, he's under house arrest. He's in prison in Rome, and he spends that time writing letter after letter after letter after letter. He writes a lot of letters to these congregations that he's helped found over the years. And one of these letters is Philippians. So he's in prison writing this letter. And this letter, as we learned a few weeks ago, is often referred to as the letter of joy. A letter of joy, which is so interesting, right? Because he's in prison. It seems like the dream for his life that he had had been frustrated, and yet he writes this letter that is full of joy. He not only talks about joy and talks about hope in the letter, but the whole letter is sort of, even when he's not talking about it, sort of just hums with joy. There's this brightness to it, this excitement, this levity to it. And uh, so this is the letter of joy that Paul writes from his imprisonment. And what we're going to look at today, we're going to, our primary text today is going to be um, starting in verse 15 of chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start, we're going to start in verse 10, but our, our main focus is going to start in, in verse 15. Um, and this is sort of like the center, pretty much the center of the book. And it's also sort of the high point where, where Paul really sort of gets to his point and then, and then uh, he sort of uh, begins to riff on these, the things we're going to learn about today for all of chapter 4. And so this is sort of like his thesis statement, the thing he's been trying to say. It's a really powerful uh, passage of Scripture, and I'm really excited to share it with you today. But in order to jump into it, we need to back up a little bit. It's always important to put things in context so we make sure we know what he's talking about. So I want to back up to last week's text just a little bit and start at verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. It says this, Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know him and the power of his resurrection, 
and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. So Paul has this thing that he desires, this longing, this sort of ache inside of him, which is really interesting, because Paul is like the most spiritual person ever, right? Paul had been deeply transformed by Jesus, had had a profound encounter with him, And became a totally new person through that encounter with Jesus. And then dedicated his whole life to serving and loving and spreading the gospel and being part of the movement of God's kingdom. And yet, he says, there's still more that I'm after. There's still more that I'm longing for, that I'm seeking, that I want. And he sort of spins that out a little bit. He says, not that I've already obtained this, verse 12, or already uh, arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So he begins to talk about what he's already received from God, right? That, that, that Christ has taken hold of me. And he says, now I strain onward to fully take hold of all that God has for me. Which is crazy, because if anyone has ever attained what God has for them in their life, it seems like it would have been Paul. And yet he says, there's more, there's more I'm seeking, there's more union with Christ, there's more sense, there's a deeper sense in which the resurrection of Jesus can be fulfilled in my life. And so he strives, he forgets what is behind it, he strives toward what is ahead. See, Paul sees something in his future. He sees union with Christ. He sees being made into the image of Christ. He he sees becoming more like Christ. He sees the ultimate connection with Christ in heaven when he he finally is with with Jesus forever and he's, he's with him in fullness, right? He sees this in his future, And far from making him passive, as if he's just going to wait for that to be accomplished, what this does is that this realization of what what is available to him in his future, he gets him up and and helps him work and helps him strain and strive and move towards Christ. See, what Paul knows is that no matter what we achieve in this life, there is still something more to be had. Paul knows what uh, the the theologian C.S. Lewis says, which is that we are made for another place. C.S. Lewis has this great passage in which he says, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, I can only conclude that I must have been made for another place. And Paul knows this. He says, yeah, I'm I'm made for union with Christ, and no matter how good my career is or my family is or even my Christian service is, there will always be more. C.S. Lewis calls this the inconsolable secret which is that no matter what we desire and achieve in this life, there is a deep, deep deep-rooted desire in the heart of every human being to be united with God, and our souls are restless until we find that. And so Paul is saying there is more to be had. There is more union with Christ. There is more, and far from making him passive, it makes him active as he strains toward this goal. And then where we pick up in, in verse 15, he says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. He says, if you're grounded in the faith, if you are fully given to Jesus, 
if you've let him transform you and, and you're giving him authority over your life, if you are fully mature, then we must take such a view of things. What, what view? Well, the view he just described, which is to understand that while there are good things in this life to be had, they, are, they will never be the ultimate fulfillment. Even the best spiritual experiences we have, you know what the Bible calls those? It calls them the first fruits. The spirit of God that we have inside us when we have these big spiritual experiences communing with God, it calls it the first fruits, as, if, as in like the first taste of Thanksgiving dinner before we sit down and actually eat, right? The thing that gets, sort of whets your appetite and gets you excited. Even the best spiritual experiences we have in this life are only the first fruits of what is to come. And so what, what the attitude we're meant to have if we are mature in Christ is to understand that nothing in this world will deeply, ultimately, fully satisfy us. And then he says, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. What he's saying is, if you think something in this life will satisfy you, if you think, like, if I can just get that job or get to this point in my career, if I can just get married or if I can just figure out my relationship with my family or if I can just, if I can just this, if I can just move to that place, have this kind of house, if I can just do that, then I know that I'll finally be fulfilled. And what Paul says, if you think that, in time, God will make it clear to you. Which is why our world is full of people, Christians and non-Christians, who are achieving, achieving, and then getting what they desire and finding it a disappointment. Who are trying to live their authentic life and be their best self and whatever else, and they get to this point they thought they needed to get to, and they find it a letdown. Paul says we must have this view to understand that what we ultimately desire and what we ultimately need is something not to be found in this world. And then verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. So he's beginning to do this, interchange, this interplay here where, where there's this idea of there's something forward, there's something not of this world, there's something beyond this world that we are straining towards that will come, but... That doesn't mean we're off the hook now. In fact, it means the opposite, which, mean, which is this. If we are experiencing the first fruits of our salvation, if we are experiencing already the deep communion that we have with God and with our fellow believers, that is meant to stir us up, to get us up, get moving, so that like Paul, we are straining towards our goal and not just sitting around waiting for it watching Netflix. That's what Paul is trying to get us to do. And so he's saying, yes, it's coming. Yes, nothing in this world can satisfy. And make sure you're living up to what you have already received. Because what have we already received? Quite a lot, right? Namely, the gospel. Namely, we've received redemption, reconciliation with God. We are at peace with God. We've received a transformation of our hearts where the Spirit of God now lives within us. We've received a kind of resurrection already. Not the ultimate bodily re resurrection we look forward to, but we have seen a kind of resurrection already. In fact, the work that Jesus wants to do in our lives has been initiated, though not yet consummated. So as we strain towards this goal, we understand that there is something that, in us that we desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, and yet we are already being transformed. It's the now and not yet. This is what Paul's going to begin to play with. He's going to look forward and give us hope for what is to come, and he's going to look to here and now and give us work to do in time and space. 
So he says, let us live up to what we have already attained. And then in verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So remember what he just said. He said, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, so that I may achieve by any means the resurrection. He desires Christ. He's straining towards what is ahead, forgetting what is behind. And he says, just as I'm doing that, so should we all do that. Our future hope should put us into action here and now to pursue God, to give more and more of ourselves to him, to find anything in our life that is not of him and surrender it to him, to participate in the community of believers, to participate in the renewal of the world around us. He is inviting us to get up and move to strain towards what is ahead, to see the future hope that we have and begin to move towards it. And then verse 18, he says, For as I have often uh, told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul gets brokenhearted here. I tell you now, even with tears, he says. And Paul's an emotional guy. There's many places in the letters where he's like, this breaks my heart or it moves me to tears or I long for you and all this kind of stuff. But, but, but still, he's moved to tears by the idea that some people live as, or many people, as he says, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that mean? Well, let's think about the cross of Christ. What does the cross of Christ mean for us? What is it about? It's about the fact that we had a human problem, a real deep problem called sin. And this problem was something we could never get out of on our own. It was a human problem that required a divine solution. And so we couldn't do it on our own, so we had to seek help from an outside source. And that's how God came into the world to save us, to reconcile us, to deal with the problem of sin through the cross of Christ. Which means this, the cross of Christ is about understanding that I will never be enough I will never be righteous enough. I will never be good enough. I will never be strong enough. I will never be smart enough. I am not self-sufficient. So I need the rescue of an outside power, namely Jesus, who dies on the cross to give me a solution to my own problem that I could not fix for myself. So to live as an enemy of the cross, then, is to believe so certainly, so powerfully in your own self-sufficiency. To believe that if I just do enough, try enough, work hard enough, go to church enough, go to log extra hours at work enough, go to family therapy enough, if I just do enough, I can make it. None of these things are bad. It's good to do your job well. It's good to spend time on your family. It's great to be at church. It's great, it's great to be seeking the Lord through his word. But the, to, to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to imagine that my own efforts ever could save me, ever could be enough, that I could ever be self-sufficient. And what Paul is saying is many people, and I think this is true today too, right? Many people are walking around in the world trying to be enough and fooling themselves to believe that they could be enough. To live as an enemy of the cross of Christ is to not admit the bankruptcy of your own heart and to understand that you need the cross. And so he weeps when he, when he realizes or when he talks about the fact that many people have not opened themselves to the cross. And what does he say about them? Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their destiny is destruction. Why? 
Because whatever we build on our own, whatever we create for ourselves, whatever we achieve, sooner or later it lets us down. It crumbles. As the poet William Butler Yeats says, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. It's the nature of things, right? As individuals, so often we we build something, we achieve something, we think we've made it, and then it crumbles. It cracks, it breaks, or it lets us down. As a culture, often we build something, we create something, a new program, a new system, a new thing, a new election, and we think this is it, and then it lets us down. It crumbles, falls apart. Because if we are relying on our own self-sufficiency, it does self-destruct. So he says their, their destiny is destruction because the cross is the only thing in this world that will not break. So he says their, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. This is the idea that the word there is actually bowels or guts, right? The idea of like whatever I want on a sort of a physical, animalistic level, that's, what I, that's what's good for me. That, that's the best thing, right? So, so we, we are, become slaves to our appetites, our emotional appetites, our physical appetites. We become slaves to our, because our God becomes our stomach or our guts. And their glory, it says, is their shame. Because as we glorify ourselves, as we build ourselves up and we try to achieve and reach this high mountain, it becomes something that either chews us up and spits us out and totally destroys us, or it becomes something that falls apart, and our glory sooner or later becomes our shame. And then he sort of sums it up this way. He says, many people are living as the enemy of cross of Christ. All these things might happen to them, will happen to them in time. And then it says, their mind is set on earthly things. Their mind is set on earthly things. What kind of earthly things? Well, like success, Sooner or later, your, your job will end, either as a surprise or because of retirement. Uh, th- their mind is set on earthly things like relationships. Sooner or later, relationships end, even the best ones, either by, by some sort of relational strife or by death. Their mind is set on earthly things, like their, the physicality, their, their body, their, their health. Sooner or later, the human body decays, breaks down. Their mind is set on earthly things, is Paul's way of saying they are, they are focusing, giving themselves to things that will not last. Their identity, their life is built upon things that are finite, that have an end date, that expire at some point. I remember thinking this on one of my first trips to the third world, to a majority world country, when I went to Peru and we were driving through Lima, Peru, which is one of the biggest cities in the world, and they have, have these cardboard uh, slums that just sort of uh, sprawl up the sides of these hills in Lima. And I remember just seeing piles of trash, piles of things that had been shipped to Lima, especially to the poorer people in Lima, in an effort to sort of alleviate their poverty, but they were all really cheap things. And so they all broke and ended up being discarded. And I thought, that's so interesting. So often the things we think will save us and pull us out of our spiritually poor position break and become just refuse, become garbage, become trash in our lives. Because we're focused so often on things that will not last. And I know that sounds really depressing. Like you just came to church this morning to get totally just like cut down. (laughs) But what Paul says is that if we're going to live wisely, 
we're going to live wisely, the first thing to do is, is to have an understanding and, and to take hold of and to recognize and to s- solemnly admit this fact that earthly things, if we focus on them, they will wear out and expire. And that enemies of the cross of Christ all around us are focusing on things that will not last. Alternatively, what does he say about the people of Jesus? Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. This, this phrase, I, I think, personally, is the high point of the book of Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? First of all, it's in opposition to what just came before. Their God is their stomach, their destiny is destruction, their mind is set on earthly things, they're living as enemies to the cross of Christ, that is to say, they believe in their own self-sufficiency. And he says, but our citizenship, or in other words, our identity as human beings is heaven, is all the things of heaven. We look forward, we think about what will it be like in heaven or when heaven and earth come together and the kingdom of God comes in fullness and in power. What will it be like? It will be a world ruled by love, by justice, by worship. It'll be a world ruled by reconciliation and restoration. And something in us goes, yes, I want that. And he says that law that exists in heaven is the law under which you live. Uh, some of you might know this. I was born in Canada, so I, I was, or still, maybe still am, a Canadian, uh, Canadian and American citizen. I'm a dual citizen, and uh, I remember researching when I was, I think, in college or in high school, researching what that meant and like, could I move back to Canada? Can I get a Can I get a passport? Like, can I visit, you know, other Commonwealth countries? All that kind of stuff. And I remember reading that if I were to move to Canada, uh, the U.S. would consider my U.S. citizenship primary. And I would still have to pay American taxes while living in Canada unless I renounced my American citizenship. And that, which is right, like how dare they? But, uh, but it's such a good picture actually of what's going on here. What Paul is saying is you might live in a foreign country, but you are still under heaven's law. The law of love, the law of restoration, the law of justice, the law of truth, the law of praise. You might live in a foreign country, but you are still under heaven's law. It's like being an expatriate, right? I have some friends from Korea that, that uh, eat Korean food and go to Korean church and have Korean friends and speak Korean at, at the home. They live in the U.S., but they still identify with their Korean cultural identity. Similarly, we are to be people who live as if heaven is already here, as if those laws are already in force, And this would have spoken really deeply to the Philippians, actually, because Philippi was what was called a Roman colony, which which is um, when Rome would conquer a new part of the world, they would not just conquer it, but then they would try to Romanize it. And the way they did that was by planting this colony or community of people that were Roman citizens, observed Roman cultural norms, worshipped in Roman temples, people who would bring the culture of Rome and Romanize this whole outside community that they had just conquered. Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant they were all, the people in Philippi were all responsible for bringing Roman values, Roman culture, Roman ways of living into a foreign culture. Similarly, he says, now because you're Christians, your primary responsibility, your primary citizenship is not Rome, it is heaven. So you begin to live out the ways of heaven here and now. 
you begin to heavenize, instead of Romanize, begin to heavenize the world around you. Uh, I was listening to a cultural commentator recently, a guy named Mark Sayers, very smart person from uh, Australia, and uh, brilliant in like figuring out what's going on with culture and like how things are uh, shaping and where things are going. And uh, he had this really interesting thing he was talking about, which is in the early part of the 20th century, uh, when we started this international missions movement in the West, that the, the danger was that we would go to these other cultures and we would colonize them, as it, or we'd westernize them. We wouldn't just bring the gospel, we'd bring the West. And so people would start dressing and talking and, and we'd make people speak English and all this kind of stuff, right? As if Christianity and Western culture went hand in hand. And uh, so, so missionaries became sort of accused by, from, by the world of being colonizers. And, and, and Mark Sayers says that was a danger in the global missions movement in the 20th century. But he says, he talks about how over the last couple decades, we as American Christians have talked so much about relevance, about not being strange in the world, about, you know, looking, talking, acting, thinking like your, your non-believing friends and neighbors. And about just sort of being like, yeah, we're just people, we're cool, we're hip, right? And what the danger is now is not that we will colonize, but that we will become colonized. That the secular culture colonizes us as believers to the point where there's no difference really. There's really no visible, intelligible difference between me and my friends who are non-believers. Because we talk the same, we act the same, we eat the same things, we go to the same places, we watch the same shows, we, we see the world the same. And what Paul is saying is that cannot be how we live if we are really to follow Jesus. There's this quote I really like by a cardinal uh, who was uh, the, the primary cardinal of Paris for like decades in the 20th century. And he, he has this quote about what it means to be a witness. It says this, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. He says, to, to be a witness to the world is actually just to live as if what God says in his word is true. As if, what, as if you really do have the Holy Spirit. As if Jesus really has saved you. As if heaven and our future destiny with God is, is assured. As if the, the law of heaven, of love and reconciliation and worship and truth and redemption and justice, as if those things are really where the universe is going. And to live those things out here and now, it is to live in such a way that if all of this were fake, our life did, would not make any sense. To be a living testimony to the truth. And I love that he says, does not consist in engaging in propaganda, or, or the way I think of that is trying to sell Jesus, which I have done. I have done. I've had conversations with people where it's like, look, I, don't, I know I don't, I don't know you that well, but do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Usually doesn't go very well, right? Unless I know that person well enough to know that like, the, the fruit is ripe for the harvest, right? But, but if I live in such, if I live among my non-believing friends and I live as a citizen of heaven, and I live culturally as if heaven were my home country, when I do that, people start to notice that I'm a little different. A couple weeks ago, a friend came up to me and said, I feel like you're one of the only people I know who's not lonely. 
And I, I was like, thank you, God. Thank you that that comes through. Because I don't feel lonely. I have this incredible community, this family of believers. And I have this future hope, this, this, I, this place that I know I'm going, this home that I know I'm going to. And that was a, a huge testimony for the gospel to be able to share that. Because God had empowered me in that way to live as a citizen of heaven. And we become a living mystery, a living testimony to the truth. What Paul is saying is we have this future hope, this destiny, this home, and it's not meant to just keep us still. In fact, look what he says next. Verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He's saying, we know this is coming. We're waiting. We eagerly await the coming of the kingdom of God because he will transform us to be like him. And you know what? Paul was brilliant. He had the equivalent of like more than one doctoral degree. He, he spoke like seven languages. This guy was insanely smart. He knows what he's doing with, with words. And when he uses the word body, I think he knows what he's doing. He's saying that for many of us, um, myself included, it's easy to think of our faith as sort of this spiritual reality that sort of lives inside our hearts and in our minds. It's sort of this intangible thing. What he's saying here is that not only should our faith live in our minds and hearts, but our faith actually should be played out in physical time and space. See, we have this dichotomy we live in as human beings in the 21st century, especially in the West. Um, I'm reading a book about this right now called Love Thy Body. I know it was mentioned a couple weeks ago. You should all read it. It's very good. Uh, Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. If you're interested in that sort of thing, write it down. But she talks about this, this, this di- uh, dichotomy that we live in in the West where we believe that, that the body matters sort of, but that the true self is found in the mind or in, in, in the spirit, perhaps. That the true self is disconnected from the body. So what we do to and with our bodies doesn't matter. And that our, that our, our, our bodies don't have anything to say about who we are. It's just what we feel. Our feelings are more important than our biology. The Bible actually teaches something very different. It teaches that we were created to be spiritual animals. Physical and spiritual beings. Which means that our faith must work itself out in our physical lives. Your day-to-day life in this world with other people next to you, walking down streets, tending gardens, working on computers, cooking meals, eating food, the day-to-day physical life in time and space should be utterly transformed by our faith by the fact that we know that Jesus is coming not just to bring us spiritual comfort, but to bring us physical renewal and resurrection. So Paul is saying, what I think Paul is trying to do is get us up off the couch. Right? I think he's trying to get us up off of just sitting there waiting for God to come do something. Or or, or maybe he's trying to break us outside the walls of our home. We live in a culture that tells us that our faith, and many of us believe this, our faith is a private matter. That our life really consists in what we do out there in the world, but our faith is just sort of this private matter to be kept in our own heads and hearts. And Paul is saying that's not so. 
Your whole life, your whole physicality, anywhere you are, anywhere you go, anything you do should be influenced by this faith. We should live in all aspects of our life as if we are truly citizens of heaven. He's trying to get us up, trying to get us to move, trying to get us to strain towards that goal just like he does. He doesn't want us to be passive people. He wants us to work for justice and restoration and redemption and truth now. He wants us to be people who who are not colonized by the world, but who bring the heavenly culture into the here and now. See, what Paul is doing, for most of Philippians, he's been talking about our future hope in heaven. And you know what he's doing now? He's bringing heaven and earth together. And who does he say are the people that do that? It's us. We are citizens of heaven. You as a believer in Jesus, us as a Jesus-believing community, we are the place where heaven and earth come together. We are the touch point between the future hope and the present reality. And we get to choose to live that out and to influence not only our our own lives, but the lives of, of the people around us and our whole culture. And, and Paul actually really spells this out in the next verse. We're going to jump into next week's reading a little bit um, because Paul didn't put these chapter breaks in here. That was done later. So he, he wants to say something really important to sort of wrap this up in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, therefore, because of everything we just did, because of everything we just talked about, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. He says, stand firm. And another place in one of Paul's letters in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we read in in the Love This Book series a couple weeks ago, he says, stand firm in the Lord, and then he tags on, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. When Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, he says, let nothing take you from there. Let nothing else convince you that you have a different citizenship. Give yourself fully to Christ and what he's doing in the world. Get up, surrender yourself to him, and let him work out this heavenly kingdom, this heavenly citizenship through you and through your life. Because of all this hope we have, because of all that we've already attained, let us live up to it. Let us be citizens of a heavenly kingdom living in this foreign land. And may it influence every part of our lives so that our lives become a living mystery, or in the words of Paul in Romans, a living sacrifice, something that tells our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, expresses to them the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. I think that's what Paul's trying to get at here. He's saying, yes, we have this future hope, but we also have this present responsibility let us become people who live into that in the world here and now. We're going to end uh, the sermon today in a very unusual way, okay? Uh, I'm not going to ask you to do anything, I promise, but it might still be strange for you. Uh, uh, in, my, in my other career outside the church and my other life, I do a lot of uh, songwriting and performing and, and singing and recording stuff, and I'm going to play you all a song. I'm going to grab a guitar here in a second and play you all a song. And there will be lyrics for you to follow along, uh, but, but not necessarily sing. The, the idea here is that we take a moment to have time with God and to really, really ask him, Lord, what does it mean for me to live as a citizen of heaven? How can I stand firm and give myself fully to the work of the Lord? 
And when we're, when we're done hearing this song, uh, we will have uh, the tables open for communion. And uh, communion is something we do as believers in Jesus to remember this, to remember that Jesus gave everything for us. So in response, we give everything for him. We give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We claim our identity as citizens of heaven, and we choose to live into that here and now. So in a moment, after we're done hearing this song, I invite you to come to the tables on your own and to ask yourself as you do, ask yourself as you're spending time with the Lord, to ask yourself, are you really surrendered to him? Are you really living as a citizen of heaven? Are you living out that heavenly culture here and now? And any part of you that is still a citizen of some other place, whether it's a citizen of your job or a citizen of your family or a citizen of anything, any part of you that is still uh, splitting your loyalties, to surrender that to the Lord before we come to the tables. Come to your church, wake up and stir, shake and unnervous God. Rivers be filled, hurricanes stilled, gather the children of God. In the dead of night, to wake up with the feeling in a world of lies. You're crashing through the ceiling, and I am flooded in light. In your love, I am catching fire. Might of the meek. Strength of the weak, we're naming our need for you, God. Darkness is strong, but daylight will dawn. Star of the morning, come in the dead of night. I wake up with the feeling. In a world of lies, crashing through the ceiling, and I am flooded in light. In your love, I am catching fire. In the darkest time, still I hear you breathing. When the world is blind, your hands are hands of healing. So come to your church, answer our thirst, awaken our first love, God. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we want to give you our primary loyalty. We want to give you our citizenship. We want to live as if everything you've done for us and told us is true. Let us be a living mystery in this culture, in this world, where so many are enemies of the cross of Christ. 
May we be an outpost of heaven here and now. And Lord, anything that has split our loyalties, we offer you now as we come forward to remember that you gave us everything. And so we give you everything in return. We love you, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen. The tables are open.